Hey folks, it's me, your Beyblading Bruiser, Jake, uh, here all in my lonesome because Holden's still on paternity leave with his adorable newborn baby daughter, and that is cute, and we like this, and we support him. But before he took his break, uh, you know, we talked about topics that he'd be okay missing out on because of the baby. And uh, number one on the list of things I was free to cover on my own was the Japanese spinning battle toy phenomenon, Beyblade. So uh, with him gone, I reached out to two experts who were willing to talk tops. And among them is returning guest Matt Alt, who's giving us some interesting cultural background about Japan and its weirdly intimate relationship with rotational playthings. And then I have uh, one of the most conversations I've ever had in my entire life with uh, Jose Lemos from Team Zanki, whose YouTube channel has over 500,000 subscribers, all dedicated to blading and the competitive scene that is still thriving to this day. But before we played those interviews, here's a quick crash course on the Beyblade franchise. So in case you didn't know, Beyblade is a series of games, anime, manga, and movies dedicated to the toy line where two players launch fast-spinning tops into the middle of a bowl-shaped arena. The winner is decided when one Beyblade is knocked out of the ring or stops spinning. This game is actually pretty much the same thing as a traditional Japanese game called Beigoma, that involved small metal tops that were intricately wound with string and required a very specific throwing technique. And then the same rules applied. They'd clink clink against each other till one flew out or one stopped spinning. But the franchise really got its start in 1999 when Osamu Mashimo, an employee at Takara, a large Japanese toy company whose story you may remember from our Transformers episode, had the idea to update the traditional Beigoma game with customizable parts to collect and upgrade, this bit beast mechanic that added a layer of Pokemon-like creature catching, and the use of a launcher that simplified the, I'm going to say, commercially troublesome learning curve needed to wind and throw the traditional Beigoma tops. By this time in Japan, Pokemon Juggernaut had been raging for a couple of years, so Takara immediately knew what to do. The, the path had already been set with how you license tie-in media to get kids to learn how to play the game and then want to buy the toys so that they want to watch the anime more, so they want to play the games more, so they buy more things, and yada, yada, yada. It all just kind of snowballs until every brain of every nine-year-old is just putty in your toy grubby hands. So first there was a manga, uh, which then gave the plot and uh, outline for a Game Boy Color JRPG, which then gave the plot and outline to an anime that was actually produced by Studio Madhouse, which is an, a weird get uh, if you're an anime nerd, if you've enjoyed any of the Satoshi Kone movies, whatever. We'll get in, I don't know if we'll get into that, but Studio Madhouse is an insane studio. This project was so successful that Hasbro, who has been working with Takara ever since the 80s, again, Transformers episode, we get into it. Uh, they begin releasing the toy stateside, and the anime was given a, I'm going to say, painfully Canadian English dub courtesy of Nelvana. Uh, just, just play a little bit of that. I just realized that even though your blade is a hundred times more powerful than mine, I can still beat you. I can. Blading is about passion, and that's my strength. Don't be a fool. Oh, Tyson. Ooh, Tyson, my boy, my precious. Beyblade, boy, no, no, it sounds bad. Throughout the years, Beyblade would continuously update itself with new parts, new mechanics, and even entirely new systems that wouldn't be compatible with the older ones that had come out. And of course, each of these updates came within an accompanying anime that would air on basic cable across America. 
And uh, just for an example, 2008 gave us what a lot of people call the metal era, where the tops were replaced, uh, the plastic, mostly plastic tops from the uh, late 90s now had much more heavy metal pieces that if they were uh, put in competition with the older ones would literally shatter them. In 2015, there was another complete reboot, and this is the version of the game that we're currently playing now, and it's the one that uh, Jose from Team Zanki is very well-versed on. That's Beyblade Burst. All in all, there's over 20 years of history, hundreds of toys, thousands of fiddly little parts to keep track of, and hours and hours of anime in which a spiky-haired young boy defeats a weirdly sexier, eviler boy thanks to the power of friendship and trusting your bae. So with all that said, let's get into the interviews. All right, and we're here with uh, Japanologist, author, uh, toy expert, and soothsayer into the various ways that otaku culture was a dark beacon of our current uh, future, uh, Matt Alt, how you doing? All the way in uh, Japan. Yes, in Tokyo. It's always great to be here. How long has it been since our Zoids, our Zoids <laughs> conversation? A year? Too long. It's Something been like too long. Uh, yes. And so we covered a Tomy franchise. It only makes sense that we cover another Japanese toy franchise that had a hit crossover anime in the 2000s in the wake of Pokemon. Oh, yes. But this one from Takara, it's Beyblade. Let it rip. <laughs> A customizable plastic top with various metal cores and collectible gimmicks in between. Uh, Collect them, customize them, upgrade them when they completely change how the battle system works. So you have to buy more. You know, all these great things that we know about uh, collectible toys. But um, what I wanted to talk to you about is because it seems like a very arbitrary thing. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. uh, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, even uh, Gundam. There's a level of imagination, sure, and uh, and how do I how do I put this? The adventures that is portrayed on screen that you then emulate through either a video game or a card game. You are playing the game, and you imagine like, okay, even though there's no actual Pikachu shooting lightning bolts, right? Sure, I sure. am I am imbuing the experience with kind of added uh, extravagance, but for Beyblade. It is a extremely physical kinetic act. Mm-hmm. It is literally two toys, two spinning tops, the kind that if you are Jewish, uh, battle dreidels is what I've heard a lot of people call. Um, you know, just a, maybe you got a little plastic one if you were a good boy at the dentist. Like the the most simple tale as old as time toy, and they're just clinking against each other. Oh, yeah. But it has created this fervor. You watch the anime, and the tops are unleashing monsters from within sure. their bit chip soul. There's doing special attacks where they light up on fire. People ha- are, you know, there's a, the supportive cast of anime characters believing in the heart of the blade and that their determination will determine whether or not the spinning chunk of plastic and metal will hit the other spinning chunk of plastic and metal. There's this very weird disconnect that it feels almost crazy to me that we're talking about tops. Like, who could possibly care that much about tops? Well, I mean, who could possibly care that much about a piece of plastic? You know what I mean? But you imbue it with a character and you, you know, you start telling a drama and and people anthropomorphize it. They they fall in love with it. You know, people love the Transformers as toys, but, you know, they really love Optimus Prime as a character. You know what I mean? They really like 
you know, the G.I. Joe characters as characters. They're not really fetishizing pieces of plastic. So, you know, humans are very flexible in what they find, you know, interesting and, and project you know, human-like characteristics on. And I, you know, Beyblade shows that even the humble spinning top can be a target of our affections. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you is that if, oddly enough, if there ever was going to be a worldwide spinning top uh, franchise phenomenon, it had to come from Japan because Japan apparently has a really deep connection to centripetal force spinning on an axis. Yeah, well, you know, most, I think a lot of Japanese, you know, huge hit franchises come from some sort of historical background in Japan or cultural background. You know, Pokemon is based on a long tradition of collecting bugs and fighting them off against one another in in Japan. Um you know, you can see remnants of sort of samurai era history and culture, aristocrats versus uh, uh, common people and things like Gundam, you know, and in the design of the robots. And Beyblade's another example of that because Beigoma, uh, that's the Japanese word for tops, have been a popular pastime there for literally hundreds and hundreds of years. So uh, this is where I was a little bit confused because uh, in Japan, apparently there's a million different kinds of tops. I watched, uh, I hate to, I don't want to summon uh, dark memories for you, but there was an episode of Japanology on it. Before your time, before your time. You <laughs> had nothing Japanology, to do with it. probably. Yes. I was on Japanology <laughs> Plus. True, true. The ultimate comfort food in troubling times, but we're not getting <laughs> yeah. into it. Um, where uh, it boiled down to regional differences. Sure, where in, sure, In the sure. north of the country, they needed uh, fatter tips to spin correctly on uh, fresh, on packed snow. Ah, and in other places, there's like uh, different techniques. There's some kind of form of juggling that involves tops. Yeah. So like, yeah, that's the, the, uh, some of the earliest observers to who, who arrived in Japan after our gunboat diplomacy opened up the ports in the 1850s uh, noted just how many toy stores there were in Japan at the time. We're talking like the 1850s and 60s here. And tops were among the, the most you know popular sorts of products that they sold at those things, just played with by kids. Um, not only did were they enjoyed by adults, which really shocked Victorian observers, like, wow, able-bodied men and women are playing with tops, perish the thought kind of thing, God forbid. Um, but also there were traveling street performers who did all sorts of tricks with tops. And one of the... One of the big ones was getting a, a, a top to a metal top to spin along the edge of a folding fan mm. uh, and transferring the top from fan to fan and like doing kind of dances and things. I mean, it's a pretty difficult thing to do. And all sorts of top related tricks were done by street performers who would, you know, have people gather around them. And I'm, I'm assuming would uh, get, you know, tips after they did their performance. So tops were really like kind of part of the entire cultural exchange between Japan and the West from the very beginning. I have a quote uh, from some, I would not share this quote if it wasn't for the uh, the originator's very hilarious name uh, from 1863, one of the many gunboat bound visitors. 
uh, one Sir Rutherford Alcock. Ah, the British legation. He's the head. He's 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 Great Britain's diplomat to Japan at the time. Oh wait, so what 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 about what can you tell me about Sir Rutherford Alcock? Sir Rutherford Alcock was dispatched to Yedo, uh, as Tokyo was called at the time, to be uh, the 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 head diplomat, the ambassador, basically. For from between Great Britain and uh, and Japan, and he negotiated all sorts of treaties, and he also sort of was the de facto like mayor, I guess you'd call it, of of Yokohama and 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 Edo of the foreign population who was there at the time. Oh, and he was kind of a stern taskmastery type, and 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 he tried to, you know. For, not out of being a jerk or anything, but just for the benefit of, of Westerners there telling them like, you know, these, this is the etiquette you should observe while you're in Japan. Mm. You know, this is the sort of stuff you should do when you see people approaching you on the street, you should pass on this side or that side. But he also famously referred to the, the people, the foreigners who populated Yokohama at the time as the scum of Europe. I mean, you, it was this, it was this motley Wait, crew. Are you saying, are you saying from the 1800s, <laughs> The people, the the otaku, the the Western otaku were just degenerate scum. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> but this is the thing, right? So, like otaku are one thing. These guys are like seamen. They're like <laughs> sailors. They're like speculators. Like everybody was heavily armed with like guns, ready to shoot at a moment's notice. If you've ever seen the TV series Deadwood, mm. the same exact thing was going on in Yokohama at the time. So you literally had scenes of essentially kind of wild west cowboy types facing off against samurai uh often with fatal results and and wide-ranging diplomatic results in the streets of uh yokohama and on the road to edo and things like that and it was a very very wild time uh and rutherford alcock to bring it back to your question was one of the kind of attempted voices of reason you know trying to keep a lid on things at the time and unfortunately all these poorly educated sailors were just giggling too much at his let's admit hilarious name yes so go on give, I give mean, us his rutherford. quote give us his quote rutherford in one of his many dispatches from his time in japan uh he says it has been suggested that we meaning the british might be called a nation of cricketers and fox hunters and some french think that we are made up entirely of jockeys and boxers the same hasty generalization would make the Japanese a nation of top spinners, in which they certainly have achieved greater excellence than any other people. That sounds right on target for Mr. Olcock. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Begoma. Is that the catch-all term for top? Yeah, so Begoma is basically, if you ask the Japanese person, you know, to describe a top, you know what I mean? Just listen. Top, you know, not going in any regional differences or anything like that. Begoma is the basic term for it. And some say that the tops were imported from China long ago, but it isn't really clear who invented them or, you know, how, how they came to be. But it is known that by the Edo period, when, when Rutherford was uh, at his peak of his powers, uh, that, you know, that it had been kind of established as a game where you would wrap a string around the Begoma and you would spin it. And whoever's top spun the longest or knocked somebody else's top out of the kind of play area won. And this was a pastime for kids. But uh, as, as Mr. Alcock's quote shows, quite a few adults engaged in this as well. Like there was never really the kind of high wall between kid stuff and adult stuff in Japan that there was in the Western world at the time. 
And not only Rutherford Alcock, but other observers said things like, you know, we can't believe the number of of grown men and women who are playing with toys here, (laughs) you know, and this is not to the exclusion of doing like the regular lot, like by modern standards, like the idea that an adult in their free time might engage in a pastime that that would be seen as childish is is completely normalized. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we watch cartoons, you know, we play all we do. all We play video games, you know, we do all sorts of things. But at the time, this was seen as really scandalous behavior by Westerners. And so the uh, standard design of a Begoma battle top, the, the ones that I saw doing research is they're the squat metal guys. Yeah, yeah. Without the traditional stem yes. or point of a I, like a, any other standard uh craft top that you could imagine the tip yeah i don't know what you call it so they were originally made of shells is my understanding with a weight in them and they use some kind of wax to kind of you know seal them seal them up and and give a little handle on them but then they quickly came to be made out of lead Mm. which is really great let's give just like lumps of lead to our children (laughs) and uh, and then later on they were made out of like cast cast alloys and things like that but yeah by modern by you know they, they look they're pretty squat they almost look like pogs or something like that you said they were made out of shells they're the very earliest ones like kind of in the in the pre-modern if you want to call it that incarnation of them oh. uh is is i have read that i'm not an expert in in Begoma, and i'm sure somebody out there is going to correct me on this but i think there are examples of them that are so, you know, almost every toy was handmade back then. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is they didn't have like factories and stuff. So while the, you know, especially in the in the in the Meiji period when Japan modernized, I'm sure there were factories making stuff, like little neighborhood factories. But before that, it was probably hit or miss. Did you get something that was handmade by a guy? Did you get it, you know, was it was it made out of found materials? <laughs> um, that sort of thing. So because Japan was, you know, really on the cusp of modernizing. When the Westerners arrived, they were basically a feudal country. Mm-hmm. You samurai walking around. And then like within 10 years, they're like sailing steamships across the Pacific. Suddenly we're like this, you know, modernizing power. So like it's Begoma are, are, are it's really interesting. They're there at that inflection point between Japan and the West. And they're wound tight with a string that you kind of wrap around them. Yes. And then you just kind of flick them onto what it looks kind of like a drum, like a sunken drum head. Yeah, there's like a playing. F- I mean, there's all sorts of ways of playing it. I'm sure kids just did it on the street uh, a lot of times, but also, you know, they, there were kind of little playing surfaces too. And uh, it's the rules are very similar to what a modern person familiar with Beyblade would know. Uh, it was either knocked out of the ring or one would, stop spinning before the other one. Uh, And I'm sure the more bombastic kinetic ones would be the ones that got people excited. All in all, it was it's it wasn't uh, a licensed toy. It wasn't like, you know, there wasn't a uh, official brand of them. Anybody who had a lead foundry or could cast metal could make them. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, there's no like moving parts. Yeah. I'm, I'm it's I'm imagining like a a commodity children's tactile toy like uh jacks yes. or marbles yes or, yes uh any kind of because there's a competitive aspect i'm maybe is was metal like rare enough that like you wouldn't be able to just like take one if you won metal was pretty rare in japan at the time uh it was i remember reading a autobiography of a japanese gentleman who went abroad to san francisco at around this time and he recalls being shocked at seeing how many tin cans and things were just discarded on the street that those would have been recycled instantly in his country oh because metal was in fairly short supply back then so in my timeline uh bagel 
Velma uh, were a just a classic children's toy, a valuable part of every uh, child growing up, uh, all the way up until uh, through the post-war period, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. And then it kind of fell out of fashion around the same time that more toy, more newer toys were kind of being introduced. We sure. kind of talked about uh, how Tomy in uh, the post-war period started making these elaborate metal military figures. Yes. Beyblade is a product of Takara, which in the grand uh, holy trinity of Japanese toy companies, there's Bandai, there's Tomy, and there's Takara. Bandai is now Bandai Namco, and Takara is now Takara Tomy. That's right. But what is the story with uh, Takara as a toy company? Yeah, so Takara was is definitely like a lot of toy companies in Japan have like really super long histories. Takara is actually only dates back to uh, the mid 1950s. It was founded in 1955, um, and when I, as as a as a longtime toy collector myself, I when I think of Takara. The main distinguishing feature of it is, is that they tend to make their own original character toys rather than pursuing licenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in in the in the sixties and seventies, there was a huge lucrative market in, in merchandise from like anime and live action shows. Bandai made its fortune uh, by making diecast uh, first tins and then diecast toys of robots, mm-hmm. uh, Chogokin. They were sold as America as Go Daikin in the 1980s, um, and then as making Gundam models in the 80s. Takara, on the other hand, tended to focus on making original stuff. Uh, for instance, this, what we know as the Transformers. Oh, oh, we oh yes. this story. Yeah, what we know is the Transformers are actually based on a series of Takara lines, uh, variously known as Diaclone and Car Robots. And those weren't based on a TV series or anything. They were completely out of the hearts and minds of Takara engineers. And in Japan, the the Car Robot stuff uh, in particular was sold without any kind of really story attached to it. There was some kind of rudimentary story written on the boxes, but like it wasn't a, a character toy in the sense that, for instance, like Gundam was or like Mazinger Z or, you know, the Get a Robo, these kind of popular toys there. No, it was just like, hey, look, you want a toy car and a toy robot? We gave you both in one. Isn't that neat? Yeah, exactly. No, there were puzzles and they were actually originally sold as chameleon toys. That was one of the the names they were called because it was a kind of puzzle aspect that you could transform from one way to the other. And this actually taps into something we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is that so many toy lines in Japan have some kind of historic precedent. In Japan, there's a really, really long history of shape-shifting creatures and animals. We know them as yokai now. Mm-hmm. And they many of the yokai would shape-shift into everyday forms that you, and hide in life around you. So to me, like it's always been a question. You know, Japan didn't invent cars. They didn't invent robots. So why did they invent tra- cars that transform into robots? Like I think the roots of that can be found in that sort of folklore and that tradition. And so similar with the Beyblade, the, the tops... You know, it seems to me really natural that Takara would gravitate toward this thing. They didn't have to license. It's a a top, you know, there's no patent on a top. (laughs) And they could develop it into their own lucrative toy franchise. That's like classic Takara stuff to me. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, in a a very compressed nutshell, that's the the kind of Takara history and and, and how we got to now. And we did an episode on Transformers and... The web of insane interconnected oh, yeah. franchises that started at G.I. Joe, yes. led to Microman, yes. led to Transformers, 
or led to Diaclone and whatever. Henshin Cyborg. Yeah, that then led back to Transformers. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Micro Man yeah. then became G.I. Joe. Exactly. Because we they made, sm- like, it's just the connection between Hasbro and Takara bouncing back and forth, creating all these things. Yeah, well, that, the whole, that the Microman line is based on a line called Henshin Cyborg that's basically Takara's import of the G.I. Joe figures minus the G.I. Joe storyline that they had <laughs> back in the 60s. And it's really ironic that that kind of fed back into, like, the Transformers, which is a non-character storyline in Japan that turns into, the, like, this huge franchise in the States. So... Um, yeah, that's a lot of interesting toy history there. Uh, so to the best of my ability, Takara had tried multiple times to bring back the Begoma concept in a more marketable, modernized way because kids had veered so far from the traditional toys. There's a song that's supposed to be sang on New Year's that covers, that's literally like a top is not something a kid would actually play with of their own volition anymore. It's something that you have to do when they cram you into your like hakama for a festival or something. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, because kids wanted just like just like modern day kids, they want what they saw on TV. <laughs> you know, they wanted robots, they wanted like Power Rangers. You know, it, it's and a top would would have been terribly old fashioned. I, but you know, kids love spinning objects and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, I played with. I was always fascinated with my Jewish friends' dreidels as a kid. I thought, I'm like, wow, look at these, like, there's, there's exotic characters on them and, and the design of them. So it's under, you know, I'm sure most Japanese kids would have had exposure to tops, either through their parents or grandparents. And like you said, through like festivals and, and holidays and things like that. Um, but it's it's pretty amazing that Takara managed to make them cool and relevant again. That's like a really amazing trick, <laughs> you know? Like imagine like, you know, battle dreidels. It's like imagine somebody t- turning the, the dreidel into like the hottest commodity of 2020, you know, 22. So throughout the 80s and 90s, Takara kept launching these prepackaged sets of like updated battle tops. Uh, I could not find any photographs of them, but supposedly they existed and they all fell flat on their face. They huh. were not hits. And it was up to a uh, Takara employee named Osamu Mashimo, who I was not able to track down any actual interviews with, but he is the guy that is listed several times as the creator of Beyblade, who had the brilliant idea of, well, our toys didn't do well. What is doing well? Uh, It was the late 90s and Pokemon. Pokemon had taken over everything. I know it was a huge thing in America, this kind of atom bomb of a new style of engaging with toys with this insane fusion of the video game leading back to the anime where the anime taught you the mechanics of the video game, which then led to more merchandise and a card game and everything was made from the same kind of fountain instead of just licensing off everything. If, if I might, I think you're missing a really key aspect of this in your history. Ooh. Do you know what B demands are? I've seen it mentioned as another Takara product. Yeah. B Dama or something. So in the, in the early nineties, Takara made and, and really succeeded with this line called B Dama and B Dama in Japanese is the word for a marble. A glass marble, and B dama B damans were you know B dama is 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 the is the marble B daman is you know when you put an N on it you get this kind of name. We're like these kind of cool looking chibi you know super deformed cute looking robots and other characters that would like fire a marble out of their stomach, and that was a huge hit. 
like Takara in the, in the early nineties, it didn't make it to the States, but it was a really big hit for Takara for Takara. And after, you know, but fads only last for like two or three years. So like by the mid nineties, when the B Daman, you know, fad sort of lost its shine, they decided, Hey, let's, you know, that worked so well with, with marbles, which is obviously another traditional toy line. Let's try tops. And that's where Beyblade came from. As far as I'm aware, uh, internally speaking. Okay. If that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, especially, yeah, marbles to tops to. Yeah, yeah. And like in their whole history of, you know, let's do our own thing rather than just licensing stuff. It's uh, July 1999. They launched three tops, uh, Ultimate Dragoon, Ultimate Sizo, Fro- and Frostic Dranzir. All these, I swear to God, all these, I finally understand what my parents felt when I got into Pokemon and was just <laughs> spewing right. nonsense phrases at them with right. fully knowing their meaning. Heaven Pegasus and Revive Phoenix and all these insane, like there's so many, I could not find an actual number. I could not find a number of how many Beyblades have been released, but if there's even close, to, it has to be in the hundreds. Right. And they all have these insanely complicated names. Like I'm, I'm making one up, but like, Drangin F3 Revive Plus 2F. Sure, sure. Sure, sure. And these Beyblade fans know exactly which one is which. Sure. And the one of the things that this original Beyblade line did differently was that you could actually take the pieces from each individual one and recombine them to create the ideal top. Right, right. You had that customizable aspect, right? Where you could swap parts out and make like, you know, your own custom weapon. And that is what uh, Osamu Mashimo is kind of credited as kind of bringing into it is if you buy a top and you just fight it and it's just, it doesn't do well against your friend's top, you're just kind of boned. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the perpetual ability to tinker and experiment with different parts or build a top that is specifically has the right mix of physics because the physics of Beyblades is a whole nother thing. I'm going to talk to a professional Beyblade competitor slash Bay influencer oh, wow. and really get into how the individual strategies have emerged and the meta of a Beyblade in a competitive setting. But everything from uh, the attack type, which has a uh, wider... Uh, base so it has uh, it moves more erratically and will hit harder. The defense type that is actually more compact and is able to take hits without stopping. Balance type, the height of the Beyblade, the weight of the Beyblade, all factor into its performance on any individual fight. That's so much more involving than just I bought a chunk of metal. And now I threw it. Yeah. Oh, sure. Well, it's, it's it, it introduces it introduces strategy, and it's not just luck or skill anymore. You know what I mean? Because you know, letting allowing allowing kids and adults to customize their tops is, I mean, it just adds a whole level of depth to the experience that you didn't get when you were slinging chunks of lead at each other <laughs> on the streets of Edo. And obviously, uh, this came out after Pokemon, and they. Immediately, we're like, well, we know what the formula is. A manga was written and drawn by Takeo Aoki. Uh, an anime was created by uh, Studio Madhouse. The Game Boy games were released. PlayStation games were released. And all of it kind of fed back into itself, all to kind of push the toys. Is it that in the late 90s, this style of uh, toy 
franchise conversion was just perfected or was it just the first time it was experienced in America? A little of both. Um, That's called the Japanese have a term for that. It's called the media mix. Mm. And what the media mix is, is what we'd call kind of cross platform cooperation uh, for multimedia franchising. It's kind of telling that we have this long phrase for it and Japanese have this one little compact one. And it basically that that dates all the way back to the first anime that ever aired, Astro Boy in 1963, where um, the there was a comic, there was a cartoon. The cartoon was made from the comic. And then there was pr- merchandise in the form of all sorts of things, stickers included with candies. Their sponsor was a candy company. Um, toys, all sorts of stuff. And over the decades, that got honed into a... Astro Boy had started from a, a comic book and developed from there. And in the early kind of period of the 1960s, Japanese toy companies depended on comic book creators to come up with something that they could, they could be animated and turned into a show. But by the 70s, they realized, well, wait a second, why don't we make a toy and then pay someone to make a cartoon of it? And that was a huge breakthrough moment that started to happen uh, in the in the mid seventies. Uh, the first one of that kind was a show called Brave Raideen. It's this big kind of Egyptian looking pharaoh looking robot. It was one of the Shogun warriors, oh. and that show it's actually one of the first transforming robot designs. Uh, and Bandai's company, uh, Bandai's uh, subsidiary Popey, who was handling all of that stuff at the time, you know, they they came up with the toy first. And the anime and the cartoons followed and all of the other stuff followed. And that sort of set the stage for the way things would be with the toy companies sponsoring shows for the next decade and a half or so. You know, the toy company came up with the idea. They paid a studio to make a cartoon. Then, hey, let's we'll pay a, an artist to make a manga. We'll we'll franchise out sub rights of the, the merchandising to other companies who want to make like food tie-ins and things like that. And you get this giant web of interconnected sort of promotional capabilities where it's almost inescapable. And you see this today, like Demon Slayer, for instance. For a while there last year, you literally could not leave your house in Japan without being assaulted by <laughs> Demon Slayer merchandise on every vending machine, every store shelf. You turn on your TV, every commercial. There, oh, there's Demon Slayer, the show. Hey, I'm walking past. The, there's the Demon Slayer, the movie. You know, like that sort of. I like, got to take the train to work. Oh, the train has been painted exactly, to look like a it's giant Mugen train. <laughs> We're on it. Yeah. So it's Japan really perfected that, and it was against the law to do that in America for a long time. Right. It was actually against F. FCC regulations to broadcast shows that had a toy component to them. And that all changed with uh, when Ronald Reagan uh, took office. He was a huge, staunch deregulationist. He believed that the government should not be involved in things like that. And he was he was really trying to deregulate the radio industry and the TV industry so that conservative voices would, would have more of a voice in in uh, uh, mass media. That set the stage for things like Rush Limbaugh and it set the stage for things like Fox News. Hey, have you had an argument with your uncle about face masks recently? <laughs> well, okay. That's Ronald Reagan's fault, but so is Ninja Turtles. Exactly. Ah, like, pros and cons. Transformers, all that stuff. Like, so Saturday morning fever basically is a result of that. And at when when that law was when that law was passed, and the toy companies are like, oh man, wow, we can do this now. They didn't have any content to go. So they imported stuff from Japan mm-hmm. where the media mix was already. That's why in Saturday morning times, almost 
all of the shows we consumed were either showcasing Japanese products mm-hmm. or animated in Japan. Oh, yeah. Or both, like the Transformers. You know, Voltron, Pac-Man. There was a Pac-Man cartoon. It was really great. Um, actually not. It was terrible. Uh, all sorts of stuff like that. So, yes, Japan had a long history of brainwashing children and forcing their parents to buy toys for them. <laughs> But it, it's watching the watching episodes of the anime from uh, all the way back to uh, 2001 to uh, which and now the new episodes are still being made in 2021. The franchise has only taken a couple years rest, basically in the mid 2000s. And then it came roaring back. Uh, the level of refinement where every scene and everything is set up to be like, He's unlocked his new level three evolved dragon. Yeah, yeah, F. yeah. Well, they, you have He's to say. He's using the counter spin plus engine system yes. available right now at Toys R Us to like. Yes. And people are, it's. Well, because that's the whole thing. The cartoons have to be educational. They have to educate <laughs> the kids as to what the new. I mean, that goes, but G.I. Joe was the same way. They never said like, let's get in the helicopter. They're like, let's get in the dragonfly trademark <laughs> helicopter. I get it's, I'm just old. I'm just too I'm just old enough and removed enough without the nostalgia lens to be like, oh, this is blatant mind control. Yes. <laughs> well, no, it's, but kids love to be mind controlled. Kids <laughs> love this stuff. You know, it's like I like I watched Voltron on TV. I want Voltron. You know, it's the same thing with Beyblade or Pokemon or anything else. It's you know, it's the adults who see it as brainwashing. The kids, the kids see it as just plain awesome. Within Japan. Do you feel like the uh, shift from these hyper commercial toys to from these very like folksy regional uh, classic children's playthings is like, is there a tension there or is it just a natural evolution? Oh, I don't think there's a tension. I, I've never noticed a tension. I mean, then again, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Like, I, I hang out with a lot of people in the toy industry. You know, my friends tend to be people who, you know, grew up on Transformers and stuff like that. So like when their kids come home and want some kind of licensed toy, it's not, it's not taken as some kind of affront on, on humanity. It's just like, Oh, okay, here we go again. You know? Uh, so no, I, I don't think there's any of that. Like, you know, there's no like society for the preservation of tops, you know, protesting, sending out like, you know, protesters to Beyblade tournaments or anything like that. If anything, I think, you know, it, people see it as a kind of fun bridge to the past, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Thanks for having me. Stay tuned. Uh, in just a second, we're going to have someone who will explain to me in breathtaking detail how the Chosy burst stopper system works, as well as the infinite lock system that was done in the hard metal Gen 3. I don't know. It's, I can't get through it all. <laughs> Matt, you have a book. It's a very good book. Thank and you. The, everyone I know who bought the book from listening to you last time said it's a very good book and everybody should read it. What is this book? It's called Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And it's all about me, a detective style, tracking down like Detective Pikachu. I'm tracking down all of these uh, seminal, uh, amazing um, inventions like the karaoke machine, the Game Boy, uh, and, and tracking how they transformed our modern lives. So it is a glorious celebration of Japanese pop culture and its impact on modern times. It's called Pure Invention, How Japan uh, Made the Modern World. And it's at your local bookstore. You mean Amazon. (laughs) Or your local bookstore. (laughs) Support your local bookstore. But yes, it's on Amazon too. Thank you so much. And thank you for just being a valuable resource for a kind of part of uh, the childhood nostalgia engine that... uh, 
you know, it's kind of harder to get resources on. Well, it's, you know, it's always a pleasure to be here and to keep the top metaphor going. I love your, I love what you do. love your podcast. You spin me right round uh, like a Beyblade, <laughs> right round, baby, right round. All so right, uh, right. call me back anytime. Oh, absolutely. Call me back anytime. And, uh, okay. All right. We'll cut, be right back. Cut, cut. I guess. Great. I guess Excellent. it's a cut. <laughs> Hey there, thanks for joining us in this deep dive into the world of Beyblades, letting it rip, go shoot, however you want to say it. Uh, This has been a real brain banana peel for me. This has been just my third eye is open and it is spinning with the uh, chosy lock mechanism or something along those lines. (laughs) I am so over my head that I had to seek outside help and so I consulted one of the uh, top, I'm going to say Bayfluencers, one of the top Bay content creators online, Jose Lemos of Team Zanke. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. You have a uh, social media. You have a website. You are, for many people, a uh, kind of the, their first taste of Beyblade as they kind of get deeper into it. Um, what do you, Can you describe what Team Zanke is and uh, what you cover on your channel? Right. and? What made you decide to start making Beyblade content in the first place? Right, that's a lot. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you uh, for having me here. <laughs> so the YouTube channel, uh, Zanki, I cover Beyblade content. I originally covered, so I grew up with the second generation, which was Metal Fight Beyblade. So that was 2010. So you might remember Metal Fusion. Then after Metal Masters, Metal Fury, Shogun Steel. Then after there is that dead space. And then as the years went by, I believe 2015 of July... Then the third generation started with Beyblade Burst, and I've been covering Beyblade since. And I like Beyblade. It's a lot of fun. Even if you like the anime or don't like the anime, just the idea of the spinning tops battling is a lot of fun, and a lot of people get into it just for that. It's Going to your channel, it's actually kind of amazing how long you've been doing this. Like, I, It's very weird talking to uh, one of these like child toy tubers that, you know, I, I'm an old man. I am uh, vast. I am quickly approaching middle age, like on a on a bullet train to hell. <laughs> and so I was always wondering, like, man, there are all these kids on YouTube, like doing unboxings, doing like mystery toys, just <laughs> kind of building this yeah. brand and a proto form of themselves. But here I am talking to you and you seem like a normal person. How did that happen? Oh, uh, I believe I did something called aging. And uh, I think <laughs> I think I matured from there. Starting off, it was just uh, for fun, but, uh, you know, getting more into it. I I really enjoyed the anime, and I thought it was a lot of fun, and meeting a lot of people, too, that also like uh, the similar stuff like Beyblade. It's been really uh, nice, and it doesn't really matter the age. You could be a fan of the original plastics, Metal Fight, or Burst. The community is very welcoming. Is there like kind of a generational divide? Like, are, is there stereotypes that emerge where like, oh, these burst babies don't know what it was like yes. in the old days? Is that like a thing in the community? Yeah, it's kind of hard, but there are a lot of times where I kind of have to tell people that burst is not as bad as they think it is because they just see burst and they think, well, this kind of just looks like it's boring. I had plastics and plastics and blah, blah, blah. But I, I assure you that burst is a lot of fun and actually... Regardless if you're a fan of whatever generation, Burst has actually done remakes of the original bays in the Burst form. So your Dragoon, your Pegasus, your Dronzer, El Drago, etc. Dracial, Dronzer, Dragoon, Dramanama Ding Dong, all the Galleon, Gal Geiger, George Geiger. That's the amount. Okay, well, actually, I'm getting way too ahead of myself. Um, 
Okay, so just for people who have never seen it before, uh, a Beyblade battle, even across different generations, basically involves two, uh, usually two people uh, spinning up their Beyblades in a launcher, dropping them into a shallow bowl-shaped arena, and then the uh, win conditions are uh, one loses momentum and just stops spinning, and the one that's still spinning wins. One can be knocked out of the arena, and the one that's still in the arena wins. Um, And then with Burst, uh, there's a mechanism in which through, I guess, the transference of kinetic energy, a mechanism is uh, activated within the Beyblade, and it falls apart into different pieces. And that is a Burst win, and that is worth more points than a stamina just spinning longer or a ring out. Yeah, so burst. Uh, okay, so this is where I explain the burst system. Mm-hmm. So uh, to go over the original system before it gets complicated, there is the original energy oh, layer. Oh, we crossed that Rubicon. We are we are <laughs> complicated. It's the original energy layer. So think of that as like the bit beast and avatar thing. That's like the main part. Then after you have your disc, which is a metal disc, and then after the driver or localization performance tip. So basically, for Takara told me. There is teeth, right? So you'll hear like a click sound when you lock it together. And then after certain bays, certain layers have certain amount of clicks. So they have burst resistance, right? So certain combinations will be better than the other for the resistance. Like it's it's a very interesting game. And I like it quite a bit because even though the battles are technically shorter than the past, it's just that surprise that a burst could happen. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the, cl- the clicks is just if there's a sudden shift in G-forces, I guess. Yeah, so, right? like, so like if they smack it, there'll be like a click. And it depends because some case, so there's like strong clicks, there's like weak clicks, middle. It depends all on the layer or later on when they actually get the specific chips. Okay, so this is the biggest question. This is the one that I've been having the entire time I've been watching videos of competitive tournaments. I've been watching people compare different configurations. Um, And it's the role of chance in any given game. Is competitive Beyblade, like uh, to me there's different layers of competition in which chance matters. There's Mm -hmm. something like chess, where both sides have a very equal footing and equal pieces and it is up to raw skill. There's something like uh, Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Magic the Gathering where an individual deck kind of, despite skill, there's definitely like a meta that emerges that in a competitive layer, by the end of a certain system until a governing board intervenes, there's definitely just a winning combination that everyone by the end kind of locks into. Yes. Um, And then there's something like poker where there is so much chance and it is like the difference between someone walking in blind and a competitor is the difference between a 50% win rate and a 60% win right. rate where that level of instinct and experience can like be the difference, but it is still so much up to chance okay. in Beyblade. Mm-hmm. How do you like, I just don't under, like how on any given matchup, can a bad top beat a good top? Uh, Okay, so with how competitive works, you have to be keeping up with... So I'm talking about specifically Burst right now. So you have to keep up with the latest releases because the newest release could have really good parts and that could help you out. So in a sense, like let's say you go through a Beyblade generation from start to finish. You could technically call it pay to win because you essentially have to buy the new parts in order to compete. That does not mean that the older stuff is bad, but... There is a meta. There are certain parts that are very top tier and that are always used in winning combinations. 
And there are other parts which, despite maybe having a fun gimmick or they do something really cool, do not really work out too well. There's always the chance that you could win, but it's also you have to be smart with the combination. I guess sort of like a card deck in Yu-Gi-Oh! or something, if that makes sense. Okay, so that's that's the the ability for the game system to uh, kind of update itself and increase improvements is weird to me. This is what I have trouble wrapping my head around because, like you said, there is the weight disc, which is just how much, right. literally how many grams of metal weight is in the uh, is in the top or the bay. I'm sorry, the bay is top. Like, a, is that a dirty word? Is that like, is that not? It's, do you not call them no, top? That's, no, that's fine. That's fine. It's it's okay. used. There's the weight at the top. There's the shape of the performance tip or the driver where, uh, you know, uh, a skinnier uh, tip will have less friction, but it won't be as stable. Um, There is uh, the attack layer or the plastic layer where the different shape of the teeth can affect its like angle of momentum and it's like wind resistance, which, you know, all these different things matter. So. But it, there's only it's just physics in a way like there's just how is it not that whatever is the heaviest one that can spin the fastest wins? Yes. Yeah. So the thing is, is that weight isn't everything. It's the shape of the bay and everything and also the parts and different performance. For an example, I could have a super heavy top. Like, I'm just going to give an example. There is a bay called Dynamite Belial, and it goes through a lot of upgrades in this latest season, and it's going to be, like, the technically the heaviest, like, stock as of the moment, right? Stock combo. So if I were to get something that is Rage Longinus, so Dynamite Belial is a right bay. Rage Longinus is a left bay. Rage Longinus, uh, to give uh, you context... Right, okay, right bay and left bay is the direction it spins. Yeah, so clockwise, counterclockwise, right? So just to give context, Rage Longinus was like this extremely powerful release that came out last year that is only now <laughs> finally having like a counter combo against it. It essentially has upper attack. It is very good at KOing opponents and it is very tough to beat. With the latest seasons... While it's still, the bays can still technically burst, they don't burst as much as they would. Because obviously, as more complicated as it went, they would have to think of how to up it each time. Mm. So, in a, uh, so in a matchup, if I have a big, heavy top, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it rip. And I'm just going to, just I have the most kinetic energy contained in this right. circle. What is the counter to so that? So, it would depend on what the bay is, but generally speaking, it also depends what parts you have. Because, for an example, if you're really heavy, you could also not really move as much. And if you don't move as much, there could be a bay that, even if it's lighter, could still hit you a lot and take away your stamina over time. It's a very unique game where nothing is that simple, and there is quite a lot of thought that goes into it, especially with the new season, which I'll get into the specific gimmick uh, in a moment. In my research, the main attacks, or the main types, right. Kind of like a Pokemon, kind of like an RPG. There's an attack type, a defense type, a balance type, and a stamina type. Yes. And how do those different types differ in design? So attack types are, as the name would suggest, are more aggressive in shape. Obviously more recoil on them so they can knock back the opponents, KO them, burst them. Defense types generally have kind of like I would say more of a neutral kind of roundish shape. So they're kind of, in the sense, meant to be very tanky and hold on against the attack types. Uh, Stamina types are an interesting case with burst because we've kind of had a lack of stamina types, but generally stamina types and defense types are kind of similar. 
where they're again around a shape and balance type is usually just a mix of the three maybe all kind of an aggressive but also kind of a round shape but each type is very unique and uh parts agnostic assuming that anyone can custom the perfect killing machine yeah does an attack type lose to a defense type, which loses to a stamina type? Like, is there a rock, paper, scissor thing I would want to say yes, but is when you consider the meta too, I would say that it really depends. So I'm going to give some context. So in Beyblade Burst GT, which is season four, it was a very, I would say, balanced meta per se. You could have it where right spin attack was dominant. You could have it where a balance type was also pretty dominant or left spin attack. And with Sparking, Sparking was a unique case because there wasn't too many releases that were too crazy, but near the end of that season, they released a lot of heavy hitters that definitely changed the meta. The left spin versus right spin thing. I've seen uh, the anime clip where the guy just steal spin from another character. Like, right. if you have a wrong spin matchup, you are literally adding to the other, you're actually, tr- instead of- Yes. Instead of colliding and hoping that the other side loses kinetic energy, the other top could actually transfer spin energy to your top. Any left versus right matchup, you're gonna have spin equalization, or we use the term spin stealing. So I'll give an example. Let's say the latest release that has this example, Vanish Fafnir. The the blade is completely made of rubber. It's very squishy. It is shock absorbent. And against right base, it is a very good equalizer. It has a rounded shape. It takes a lot of spin and it is very good. But not only that, this is why I think Burst is very unique when they actually try to do this unique stuff. It's also even good against lefts because, for an example, I just mentioned Rage Longinus that was very dominant in the meta. If you put that up against Vanish with all the rubber and everything, despite the recoil and hits, Vanish could still tank all of those attacks and still win. But it is a meta where equalizer combos are there. I'm not the biggest fan because I kind of just like, I would say, more of attack types. I mean, it's fun to have your base equalize, but there is a part which I'll mention, which some may know about, some may not, which is called Drift. So Drift was released on Lucifer the End, and essentially, in any opposite spin matchup, if you use Drift, if your opponent does not also have Drift, you are very likely to win. What is a drift? What does drift do? Where does it fit on the on the right. construction? So drift, they labeled it as a defense type driver, but technically it would be a stamina type driver. It is. A I, stam- oh, oh God, I'm so sorry to keep interrupting you. What is a driver? Okay, a driver <laughs> is a performance dip, right? So that's the thing that goes okay, on the bottom. Yeah, the, bottom. The, the part that contacts the, the, the ground. So drift, it kind of has a rounded shape around it. And uh, the bottom of it is like a free spin bearing and it is made of POM, P-O-M, which is like poly, blah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. It's A like, low friction plastic. Yeah, see. so it's an annoying part to deal with, but it's also what I like about the meta too is that a lot of parts can end up being annoying, but over time with new releases, a lot of players adapt. Like one tournament, you could probably do pretty bad. And if you go to the next tournament, you could adapt learning what you've seen and make combos to counter stuff. It feels like a lot of the uh, a lot of the gameplay is about seeing what your opponent is using and yes. kind of having the right counter to it. Because if I come in with a left spin uh, rubber shock absorber guy, right. that'll completely counter 
when you come in with an awesome, cool attack type that had that looks like a buzzsaw uh, had a baby with a dragon. Well, actually, also right types do also have uh, rubber. So typically, in let so I'm going to give an example. So, and I'm going to talk about the WBO. So the WBO is the World Beyblade Organization that is made by the fans for the fans, and they host tournaments. Obviously, with COVID, follow precautions and organize accordingly. But typically, like for the first stage, so there's the first stage, which is how you advance, and then after you'd be the finals, right? So typically in the first stage, you would run something like a stamina, defense, or balance type, because attack types are kind of risky, because yes, you could KO your opponent or even burst it, but if you don't know how to control an attack type, which is very, very important you could end up losing. What do you mean control an attack type? What do you mean control? This isn't the anime. You're not shouting or you can't be like, go Astral Spriggan, use slam attack. Like that's not how, what do you mean control? So when you're launching an attack type, right? So attack types, like typically they would have like a rubber performance step, like uh, rubber flats. I'm just gonna give you an example. That's like a name of metal fight, but like the extreme driver. So you can launch straight, but your top will just go around the ridge. But if you launch downwards and you do a flower pattern, that is where your bay kind of goes like around and hits the opponent in the center. And is that is that based on the angle of how you're holding the launcher yeah. or is that based on where you drop? So it? like you you angle your launch a little bit downwards and you do like a flower pattern. And that's especially important uh, for trying to KO your opponents because it's consistent attacks. Because if you don't control the attack type right or you screw up when you launch, you'll end up just depleting your stamina even if you manage to get lucky somehow. And so once so in that initial stage, you're going in blind against the other uh other competitor. Yes. You're just like, you both show up and you both let it rip. And just the, the you know, it, you could have a bad shakeout where the other guy happens to have something that works out better. So you do a more conservative defense or balance. Yeah, type. that is typically how it would go. And then, but once you're in the tournament, once you're in the higher tiers. So like you get to finals for an example. So that's what's actually cool is that there is a thing where we call it deck. So you have three bays basically, right? Three combos, no parts can be repeated, right? Mm-hmm. So you will have three bays. Your opponent will also have three bays. You will look at it and you will pick your first bay and you will battle. Then there's rematch or no rematch or you can switch or stay, all that kind of stuff. And it makes it really unique because making a good deck is very important because you could have it to where it's typically more balanced. You could have it more attack oriented. And it's also knowing your opponent and what they typically play and it's analyzing those factors. And so uh, when it's time to pick, do you, does one person pick one and then the other can pick in response or do you go in blind with your set of three? Yeah, so at the start, you both pick one and you don't know what each other picked. So let's say I beat the opponent. I get the point. So they would say rematch, no rematch or whatever. So if they say rematch, we would go again. Let's say they say no rematch. So I would have to say if I would switch or stay. Now, if I say I stay, I keep the bay that I just used in one. If I switch, I have to pick a different bay. Then they would see what I have, and then they can see with their deck if they want to go with the same bay or they want to pick something else. So it makes it very like kind of like a Pokemon game where you know you're in you're working in response, basically. And like you know what the meta is, and you have a good idea of what they have. Yes. 
But uh, sometimes if just the timing of the switch is like not in your favor, you're like, well, dang. Yeah, if you get, especially if you deal with uh, something like, let's say for an example, I picked like a balance type combination and let's say I go up against a right spin attack. Well, maybe this balance combination has really good stamina, but <laughs> if I go up against an attack type, I'm not that confident. There's also other terminology, which I don't know if you want me to go over. Wait, maybe if it comes up, it'll come up, but uh, there's still right. so much in this rabbit hole. This dark void of uh, spinning tops. Right. Obviously, you are not, the Beyblade community is not a uh, monolith. There is not, you know, you are not speaking on behalf of everyone. I'm just asking as an outsider to an insider. um, The three eras, the, uh, you know, the classic plastic, the uh, hard metal slash what fusion slash uh, whatever uh, from 2008. And then the burst system in 2015. It's a lot of like starts and stops. Yeah. Uh, has there is there can is there a dark ages within the Beyblade fandom like the bad old days yeah. where Beyblade was kind of dead and that's like- basically the pause between generations. So I didn't grow up with HMS, so I do know that I think HMS kind of because HMS to plastics was very different because it was a very different how they made the tops, and then there was Metal Fight. So after the end of Metal Fight, which was Shogun Seal, which went through the same. <laughs> Uh, trouble that HMS did where it did not sell that well and they had to just wrap it up. Uh, there was like this dead space, which I think it was like 2013 or whatever, just waiting, where it was like this limbo where we didn't know what was coming. And seeing Burst, it was like such a different game that it was very exciting. But typically with the dead space, it would just be like finally getting to go through the meta because after that, it, everything's released. It's all completed. So... It's just like through those years, you could analyze the tops more in depth, see better combinations. With burst, it's like it's still going on, so it's always adapting and seeing what parts can work and what combinations. And uh, I know within the WBO, the uh, the competitive organization, there's two systems, two tiers. Yes, uh, is one more popular than the other, or is it kind of like Magic, where the classic uh, format still has a large oh, yeah, fan okay. base? Okay, so. The classic format is basically for the original manga slash dual layers. So I say, so basically, when Beyblade Burst originally released with its manga, there are specific layers that were for the manga, and then after for the anime, they did the dual layers. So this would be like in Metal Fight for the manga. There's the pre-hybrid wheel system, and then after when the anime released, it was like the actual thing, right? Oh, so even within the Metal's uh, era, there's incompatible systems. No, no, no. Okay, so basically in Metal Fight, the pre- I'm going to get a picture for this so it's easier. <laughs> so the pre-hybrid wheel system was like before there was energy rings, basically. And it was like just like a big metal thing. And then after, when it got to season one of Metal Fight, there was like the energy rings and whatever. But they were very unique in design and everything. Uh, just give me a second. There's the hybrid wheel system. There you go. And the hybrid wheel system, what did that bring to the So game? basically with Metal Fight, there was the face bolt, and then after the metal wheel, uh, the spin track and performance dip. Then after in the hybrid wheel system, it was the face bolt, the energy ring, the uh, the metal wheel, the spin track and performance dip. So it was just really adding one different component. Metal Fight also gets complicated, like with 40 and 0G. So you talked about uh, how... There's these gimmicks and watching the anime, a lot of the plot lines, uh, a lot of the battles revolve around these mysterious Beyblades that have magic powers yes. and super special attacks. Um, and some of these designs incorporate a lot of extra mechanisms yes. 
and unique behaviors. Uh, what are some interesting and like weird ones that you remember? And what did they do? So for Burst, uh, there is a release called Revive Phoenix. So it was a bay that technically could burst twice and also Dead Phoenix. So basically, there was an armor that wrapped around it. And if you hit it, the armor would come off as a projectile and it would stay in the stadium. Wait, a project? Like it shot something at the other bay? Like it would pop off. So it was really cool. And it was on. it's one of my favorite releases from Chosey because it's such a unique gimmick. And that armor would stay in the stadium or it could even hit your opponent and make them lose stamina. That's something out, like literally it would shoot, it shot like, it basically like a metal chakram. It would fly off and hit the other top and then stay in the field as like a trap, as like a little danger zone. Yeah, basically. And there's another one which was released in Beyblade Burst GT, which is called Venom Diabolos. So with Diabolos, it's really cool because the performance tip has a thing where if you're able to launch hard enough, it will bounce and it will actually shoot out a mini bay. <laughs> what? Wait, what? It shot out a smaller bay? So it's a lightweight, but it's supposed to like meant to also hit your opponent. Typically it could it would just get ringed out very easily, but it's it's just like these typically unique gimmicks that made Burst so interesting. That's insane to me. That is like actual anime stuff. That is spy gear. That is nanotechnology. There are a lot of times where there are gimmicks and there are times where the gimmicks actually work and they're very effective. Or there are times where the gimmick, the anime will make it seem it's a lot better than it actually is. And this is going to be a little bit of a spoiler, but Beyblade is just meant to advertise the toys. Right. Every time there's a new release, you're going to notice, oh, that new guy's new release just happens to win the battle. Uh, The... I've been, again, this has been like a shotgun approach to the anime. So I've been watching across different seasons, different right. eras, all at, all at once, barely keeping track of everything. Uh, a, an episode of Burst, uh, maybe it was Burst Surge. Uh, the entire episode was about how this one evil kid, and there's always an evil kid with a dumb hairstyle <laughs> and like weirdly sexy clothes, just a weirdly sexy 11 year old. There's the times where there's 11 year olds and they're really buff like they're 20. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very, so. <laughs> if they have zigzag hair and eye makeup, you can tell they've been influenced by an evil top and the power of friendship will eventually defeat them. You're not them. wrong, cause that is how the season ends. It's, uh, but he was, everyone was losing their mind because his Beyblade, the variant Lucifer Mobius, right. uh, had an unstoppable, it looked like a force field around it. And everyone was losing. And so I looked it up. Oh, you are holding it in front of me on it's camera. Bas- it's basically this. So it doesn't work same spin because of the fact that the rubber barrier, so it has a rubber barrier basically. So when it spins, that barrier will pop out and bays that try to hit it. Uh, if it's a left bay, you will just equalize and absorb. And the Mobius performance tip, which was before Drift, was also good against lefts. And Drift was the evolved version of Mobius. But basically in the anime, it really depends. I would say that for Burst, the peak is maybe the first three seasons. And after that, it's how your taste is. And another thing to keep in mind is that Burst for the three seasons was actually a full season. It was a full 51 episodes, whatever. But with the other seasons, from GT to Sparking to Dynamite Battle, they are technically half a season. Even though they are 52 episodes, the original episodes are like 22 minutes. These are like 11 minutes. So in reality, it's actually 26 episodes in total. Okay, but I will say, um, Baby Beyblade Burst Surge has one of the dopest anime theme songs I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, if you can, uh, super producer, if you can just drop in a little bit of that, uh, I came to win, 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 win. 
It's just so chill. I'm sorry. It's super rad. We got the spin, spin, spin. Sun in my hands. Ignite the fire. We got the win, win, win. Sparking it up. Down to the wire. We got the spin, spin, spin. Here in our hands. We burning brighter. We got the win, win, win. We let it. We let it. I have no comments on that opening. They'll edit that in. Um, So... Yeah, the in the anime, it's literally a dark, evil void force field. And in reality, it's some little rubber pieces spring load out the side and go flippy flappy flippy. Yeah, they're flappy. A little, yeah. It's kind of it's really one of those things where like the barrier is kind of like crazy, but it it depends. Basically the character you said was called Lane Valhalla, which is a very cool name. <laughs> so Isbe is Lucifer, you know, it's a very educated, he has like purple hair and it's all spiky or whatever. So it was like a running joke because he's a very hated villain, not because he was well written, but basically he would constantly just yell flare. Mm-hmm. And when <laughs> that's so the the disconnect between just a practical, mechanical, strategic puzzle of just uh, how do I make my physics work against this guy's physics does not lend itself to an anime. Yeah. And honestly, the fact that they do try with these kind of gimmick, uh, gimmick, crazy mechanism Beyblades is admirable. Right. But you're saying in a true competitive setting, the gimmicks just fall by the wayside very quick. Some of them do. Some of them do work. It honestly, it it just depends. The releases are very unique with release to release. And especially if you're trying to get into it, I just recommend going over with Dynamite Battle because that is the latest stuff. It is very easy to get into because you are dealing with the latest stuff. If you want, if you really like it, then you could try to get through the older stuff. So with the new dynamite battle system, to basically explain, so originally I said there was an energy layer, there was a disc, and there was a driver. So as the seasons went on, it got more complicated. So there was a piece that is called a core, so that is the bit beast. So this is technically what the energy layer was. So they basically separated the energy layer into multiple parts as the seasons went on, right? So then after, there is the armor piece. So This is what's unique about Dynamite Battle is that there is a low and a high mode. So high mode is when the metal armor piece is on top and it has a high center of gravity. Below it, it's low mode. It has a low center of gravity. Now, whether or not high mode is better than low mode in specific battles, that's beyond the point. But for an example, Dynamite Battle. But what you're describing is just where a few grams of metal are set are positioned. It makes all the at difference. At least maybe a, one or two millimeters. Yeah, it basically is like below or on top, right? And then after, it depends, right? So for an example, on low mode, you can only use Dynamite Battle discs that are very specific. But in high mode, you could use any disc. And what's really cool about it is I've dubbed the term Beyblade DLC. Essentially, the main protagonist for this season, Bill Daikuten, who owns Dynamite Belial, his bay basically goes through upgrades throughout the season. So there are specific releases that will come with an upgraded part. So the first example of this was F-Gear. So this came from Vanish Fafnir, and it would be an add-on piece to the blade for Dynamite. And it would allow it, since Fafnir, I mentioned, is left and it can spin steel and rubber, the piece has a little bit of rubber on each little side there, so it makes it really unique. So this is uh, this is something I actually couldn't quite figure out, is uh, a huge, a huge part of the systems and a part of Beyblade collecting is iteration. That uh, I, I think they called it evolving, the, you know, in... In the animes, it's always like, uh, I, you know, I've upgraded it or I've just believed in myself or my bit beast heard my cries and it changes a little. Uh, In reality, it means that they've re-released the same 
you buy a complete Beyblade. You don't just buy little metal rings and little plastic drivers, right? Yeah, so Bays constantly evolve, even in the same season. So for an example, in Cho Z, there was Aiga Akaba who owned Z Achilles, right? And later on, they do this thing, which is kind of like a trope now in Burst, where the bay will break, and oh, I got to rebuild my bay, but better than ever. We can rebuild it stronger, faster. <laughs> Basically, and then it shows, so the reality is, is that the evolutions is just really like a thing just to sell it again. Like, oh, mm -hmm. there's this bay, but it's evolved, and maybe it's even better than before. Okay, so this is where, this is a new question, new threat. All right. Uh, my, my sensei, my senpai, my bay bro, um, I, I genuinely have trouble with this. It feels like there's a ship of Thesuus, the Theseus uh, issue with collecting Beyblades that um, after you change out all these parts, after, you know, uh, even be, right. any piece can fit as long as it's part of the same system. Yes. Uh, so as long as it has the same rough outline. Uh, how is a Belial still a Belial? How is an Ifrit still an Ifrit? Right, what makes right, us, okay. in, what is the inherent core of a Beyblade that makes me go, oh, that's a Spriggan, even if it's made from pieces from eight different Beyblades. So the chip is what the Bit Beast actually is. So let's say a Spriggan. Oh, we didn't even talk about the Bit Beast. Okay, all right. So, all right. so. So the chip, right? That's what represents the actual base. So for an example, Ace Dragon, the beast is dragon. If you have the dragon chip, any combination is dragon because of that. And whatever the layer base is called, that is the layer base. So for an example, let's say I have Ace Dragon and I have Venom Diabolos. If I make Venom Dragon, it is still dragon just with the Venom layer base. Or if I make Ace Diabolos, it is still Diabolos with the Ace layer base. So the chip is basically what determines it. Okay. And the uh, in the original, in the classic plastic, the 2001, right. the bit chip was literally just a superfluous piece of plastic with a sticker on yeah. it because they were still chasing that Pokemon dream. With the hybrid wheel system, I believe it's actually the energy ring, which is that little plastic thing that goes on there that determines what the name of the thing is. So it's not the face bolt, which I thought it was originally, which I guess was my misconception, but it's the actual energy rings. So the names, the names are such a kick in the pants. From the beginning, it starts out crazy with, you know, just classic like uh, toyetic names like Spin Dragoon and Frostic Dranzer and yeah. stuff. And then, but nowadays <laughs> things are like, from the name alone, could you tell me the difference between Ultimate Meteo El Drago Absorb DF-105 LRF yeah. and Ultimate Meteo El Drago Rush 125 SF? Like, does that make sense to well, you? Well, if you know, okay, well, if you're not really into it, probably not, but uh, Absorb is the one that has rubber and Rush is basically the one that just has the plastic and it has like a weird jagged design. And the numbers at the end, what does that mean? Okay, so for Metal Fight, there is the spin track. So the spin track, it'll say like the height. So there is like 90, 100, 105, and it's like taller or shorter and they all have different shapes and spin tracks have different gimmicks and it varies okay. quite a bit. So that code at the end actually is useful information about it's the actual thing it's like uh what do you call it it's like uh, the short form of uh, I, I forget what it is so let me give you an example so let's say i say storm pegasus 105 rf okay what does rf mean i don't know what rf means rubber flat okay 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 an acronym an acronym there you go all right all right and then there's just so in that case it makes sense but like if I say Astral Spriggan over Quattro dash zero. All right, yeah, that, okay. What information is being, so Spriggan is the, is the bit beast, is the design, is the monster that it's supposed to evoke. So Astral Spriggan, Spriggan is the core and Astral is the blade. So what makes a Spriggan a Spriggan? <laughs> the core. 
Okay. So that's the bit beast. That's the bit beast. And is and you mentioned uh, Dragoon. You mentioned uh, Belial. Uh, is there like a, what's the Pikachu of Beyblade? There are bays that are clearly popular and will get like 50 evolutions. And the ones that are kind of unique, like get nothing. <laughs> but sometimes they get it. And then after we like get really surprised. So the Pikachu technically would be Valkyrie. Okay, uh, you're showing me a heroic blue, yellow, yeah. uh, with a with a heroic robot face yeah. kind of molded into the plastic. Valkyrie is basically the trademark. Now for me, it's technically also the protagonist of each season. So Beyblade Burst, unlike previous, except counting not counting Zero-G Metal Fight, after season two, the protagonist would change. So season one through season two is Volta Oi's story. Season three is Iga's story, but you still see Volt and you'll still see some of the bladers from the past, so they still got some world building. Season four is Drum Koryu. Season five is actually two protagonists, Hikaru and Hyuga. Oh, the red and blue guys, right? They're fun. I like them. Yeah. And then after the latest one, which is Bailey Burst Dynamite Battle, is Bell Daikuten. So a lot of times, which I disagree with, because with Dynamite Battle also, because of the pandemic and everything affects stuff, they are doing less releases, which I am fine with because quality over quantity. Because there were times where releases could get repeated parts. Mm. And sometimes repeated parts would be a good thing. Like if we didn't get that part distributed enough, that's mm -hmm. awesome. But there are times where it could be really annoying. And it's like, well, this may evolve, but it's just getting like, it's not really unique, right? Okay. But the, the but Spriggan and Valkyrie... Like, do they connote a very a specific weight or attack style? Or because the parts are so interchangeable, you can make a defense-type Spriggan. You can make a yeah, yeah, Stamina yeah. Valkyrie. Yeah, and that's another thing, which might be here for a very long time if I have to explain it. But there are a lot of unique gimmicks, and the core itself usually doesn't determine unless it's a very specific gimmick that the core has that could allow it to be better for certain combinations, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a oh, I, there's entire designs that can activate like a spring mechanism where they won't burst if they're hit in the right way. So that is okay. So to go with, so in Beyblade Burst, usually I would say this is around Shizetsu. There is like a subsystem in the main system. So, for an example, in Chozi, there were three releases that were the Chozi Awakening system. And around that time, regardless competitive or not, it was really cool. You would hard launch it, and little parts would come out of it, and it would have burst blockers, and it would increase your burst resistance. And it's unique, too, because it also changes performance. If you did not launch hard and you didn't do the Chozi Awakening, it would have a different shape than if you had the Chozi Awakening. Part of uh, the Beyblade discussion is that uh, there is... Takara Tomy originated the uh, product line uh, after failed uh, battle top systems that they kept trying to uh, use to update the Beigoma classic Japanese uh, metal battling tops uh, folk game. Mm -hmm. You can't copyright that. You can't like, you know, do, you know, th th there's yeah. incentives to commercialize it. Uh, they did a similar thing with uh, B-Dama where they took the game of marbles yeah. and created this very commercial, very copyrighted, very closed system. And they finally struck gold when Pokemon came out and they realized kids want to like, they don't just want to buy a thing and spin it. They want to like fiddle with it. They want a story behind it. They want right. that mass media, cross media video game teaching you about things that the anime then teaches you about. And it creates this like making this seemingly arbitrary pastime a full kind of make it your life, make it a full hobby. Right. Um, and then Hasbro 
naturally, because, uh, you know, Hasbro has uh, the distribution network. It yeah. has the marketing teams. It has, you know, it's uh, Takara, literally the same uh, partnership that got us uh, Diaclone and turned them into Transformers. That, you know, it's the story, tale as old as time. Right. Japanese toy, make it a little less Japanese, localize it, and uh, whatever. Yeah. So, and I always just assumed Hasbro just, uh, a Beyblade is made at the Beyblade factory, and if it's meant for America, Hasbro gets a big shipment, and they package it and sell it. And if Takara Tomy uh, releases it, it just goes to Japan, and they package and sell it. But yeah. is there a difference? Are Hasbro and Takara Tomy Beyblades actually completely different objects? So I can't speak on the first generation, uh, but when Metal Fight got to the 4D season, which is a very complicated system with the metal wheels and cool gimmicks and whatever... Hasbro did Metal Fury, which was kind of universally hated, where essentially it was nerfed versions of those metal tops. And eventually, after they got a lot of flack, they're like, all right, we're going to release this thing a little bit more expensive so you can buy it, where it's like Legends or Hyperblades, whatever it's called. It's called Hyperblades, actually, where it was the same system as Takara told me. But, you know, I would say around the Metal Fury, they kind of screwed it up. When it got to Zero-G and Shogun Steel, I think they just missed a few releases, but it was pretty much on point. So this is why I also have to mention something very important, which is Hasbro <laughs> and a wee bit of spin-offs. So because Metal Fight was extremely popular, they did a lot of spin-offs. Oh, you're talking about Bay Wheels and Bay Warriors, aren't Bay Raiders. I'm sorry, Bay Raiders. They're, they tried to milk the cow before it died. And they tried to do a spin-off where it was like a rubber wheel and you basically launch and race your opponent. And there is the other thing where it was, I think, Bay Raiders. Bay Raiders is the most insane thing I've ever seen. Uh, I, you can find the anime online. It involved a post-apocalyptic Jerusalem with ancient runes. And it's a little car that picks up plastic tokens with Velcro. The further in a world, like, genuinely what I think is part of the appeal of Beyblade. Here, like, to get me, you know, stop me if I'm wrong. Especially in the 90s and 2000s, uh, childhood safety is a big deal. Right. Uh, costs is a big deal. Uh, a kid in the 90s and in the 2000s has a world full of rounded plastic and cheap tchotchkes. Right. And when the first time they held a metal Beyblade and let it rip, there was force behind it. There was action. There was, there was right. for, for lack of a better word, it was dangerous. You know, this was, it felt like something that a kid should not have access to, especially a little kid. It even got, uh, even in Metal Fights, it got banned at my school because it was so crazy. Just the amount of kinetic energy in a little plastic tub is just too much for, did, I don't, nobody chipped their teeth on a flying Beyblade. I can't imagine what could have gone wrong. Beyblades got banned as well as silly bands. I don't know the correlation <laughs> for like, I don't like the spinoffs at all. I do think it was very... <laughs> Not to use this word, but I do think it was a little bit greedy because essentially they were just trying to milk the cow. And I do believe that this is what hurt Hasbro's burst quite a bit because while the the layers from season one to season two were virtually the same, instead of having teeth, they had slopes. All of them had slopes. And they were very different in appearance. And unlike Takara told me that had stickers, it was tattooed on detail. Now, tattooed on detail is kind of a pro because if it's a sticker, it'll eventually fall off. But my issue is kind of with modern Hasbro is that they don't tattoo the detail. So if they don't tattoo it and there's no stickers, 
uh, you're basically looking at like blank plastic, a white piece of paper. Uh, Takara, the so you're saying the Takara Tomy uh, Beyblades, especially the modern ones, the burst ones, uh, come with decals that anyone familiar with like a gunpla or any model kit kind of knows. Yeah, to get those like fine details and that good printing, and so when you apply them, it looks real nice. Whereas Hasbro, for lazy American children who cannot be trusted to like yeah. with their <laughs> sticky, chubby hands to do that extra work, just screen printed the details and the print, qu- the color quality just isn't as good. You are not supposed to put a Takeratomi driver on a Hasbro layer because Hasbro layers are designed with slopes in mind and, you know, vice versa. They physically you- don't fit together. They will, it will damage the slopes, right? Uh, so Hasbro is an American toy company. Yeah. And, the worst, their worst case scenario is that their the toy is too expensive, yeah. or the toy is too dangerous, and it makes yeah. for lawsuits, or that you know basically the competitive edge, the thrill of competition, is not their priority. Their priority is getting moms yeah. to go like okay, to look at the price of a Beyblade on the little rack because a nine year old is going ooh ooh that one looks like a cool lion had sex with a bunch of swords. I want that one. Like Right. So the thing is, is this actually a very good point which you mentioned the prices from like the base for whatever up to Switch Strike, you know, they you, you could argue is a little bit expensive. And then when Slingshock to Rise to Surge came around, the prices dipped. In a competitive setting, if I go to a uh, standard or WBO uh, contest, I'll be playing against people using Takeratomi yes. imports. Yes, yes, yes. So this is where this is where I mentioned the WBO format. So there's standard, limited, and classic. So classic is kind of like a legacy format where it's the original stuff that I mentioned before. Beyblade Burst Limited is kind of like a mix of Beyblade Burst God and like part of Chosey. But this is kind of where Hasbro is relevant because the fact that all the layers are nerfed from the future stuff, this is the format where they can actually shine. Hasbro, unfortunately, cannot compete with TT because either way, they're behind regardless. Whether it be Pro Series, they're still playing catch up with TT. And all I want, and this is something, I mean this honestly, I just want it that the bays are good. Oh, so even though Hasbro is incompatible with Takaratomi parts... You can still... It's still competitive, too. The Takaratomi uh, Beyblades, those are... You can't just find them. Like, do you go to a hobbyist shop? Do you have to import them from online? Like, how does so you do have to import it? So even I have a shop where I sell this stuff, but you basically do have to import it from Japan and uh, to get it. But it's really not that uh, difficult to get into TT. You just got to know the right things to search. For an example, I'm not going to plug myself because I don't want to do that. But yeah, let's go, say, for a- go for it. Go for it. There's Amazon.co.jp, so that's where usually people would pre-order releases. You know, it's important to play keep up because another thing too is that with every new release, you got to keep your eye on this stuff. But if you're trying to get into Beyblade Burst, obviously, you know, for Hasbro, Hasbro has their ways to get it. But with TT, it's just importing it. It's not that hard. You just got to make sure you find the right people, the right sellers. This is—I don't know if this question has an easy answer, but if it does, I'll feel very lucky. Um, do you remember in your own experience a seemingly innocuous part that completely changed the meta that like kind of or something like really must have valuable or uh, very recently? Let me try to think. Well, I could just say like the recent like some recent parts in Dynamite Battle, but like a specific thing like Meta Changer uh, was the drift uh, performance. So this is uh, what drift looks like. It is free spin right there. It change the meta, right? So uh, before, before, I I guess we're wrapping up. You have been a font of information and it has been very fun talking to you. No problem. Um, 
We're reaching a point where 90s and 2000s nostalgia is now all of a sudden becoming kind of profitable. Yeah. Uh, you know, a sealed box copy of Mario 64 goes for a million dollars. There's entire content ecosystem based on opening old Pokemon booster packs to find a hologram Charizard. Right. Is there a similar uh, kind of golden ticket in the Beyblade world, a Black Lotus of Beyblades. Yeah, but I don't think it would ever be as crazy as the Pokemon card stuff. So Takara Tomi has a thing called random boosters. So the original random boosters for Beyblade Burst was essentially eight bays, usually one prize bay, sometimes two prize bay, and the rest were random combinations. So over the years, there could be specific prize bays or even prize layers, but that could really build up in value. Like, there is a sparking release called Infinite Achilles, and I think that had limited production in the random booster, right? And it was like, I seen the prize bay be sold for, I don't know if this is just them highballing it, but like $200, which is a bit crazy. Unfortunately, with Beyblade, there is a, a term, which is, what is it, scalping, right? Mm-hmm. There are specific releases, that can, and people will hoard that years later, and you could see that go up for 200 300 whatever. And it does depend on what it is. Like, if it's genuinely a rare release, you can argue, okay, well, that price kind of makes sense. But <laughs> there are some things that are way too high for what they should be. So it's not like there's uh, people are, like, running around trying to be like, oh, my God, I got a Master Drancer in the package from 2001. Give me thousands of dollars. You could probably see that. It honestly depends, but... I don't like the idea of uh, scalping, especially with Beyblade, too. It's just... So there really isn't, like, just... uh, Has there ever been a Beyblade that has been uh, kind of recalled or banned because it was, like, overpowered? Is there these legendary (laughs) blades that are just, like, you just cannot... They were just too good for words. Yes and no. There was stuff that was good for that specific time, but obviously later on it would get outclassed. Like, I think it was in season one of Beyblade Burst, there was, like, Death Scyther, which I think was, like, banned or whatever from uh, TT from, like, their tournaments from WBBA. Bans usually don't happen, but... Well, not recently, but they have happened in the past. But, like, for Metal Fight, for an example, I think there was a funny case with pre-hybrid wheel Libra when I think they made it a little bit too heavy or something along those lines, and they were like, oh, guys, okay, I think we made a little oopsie there. (laughs) Okay, so by the very nature of Beyblade constantly evolving, constantly uh, refining itself, constantly uh, releasing things to counter the most popular uh, builds, yeah. there is, it's it's a linear power creep. It's just, it always goes up and up. That is a very good thing that I should have talked about. There is like a power creep. No, for Metal Fight, there is definitely a power creep because basically you had a basic system from season one and season two, Metal Fusion, Metal Masters. So Metal Fury hits with the 4D system. They were a lot heavier and a lot more complicated with the gimmicks. And basically, there was like this really power creep that was going up. So then after, they didn't know what they were doing with 4D. So then Zero-G came around. So Zero-G, there was essentially still the metal wheel. But there was also a chrome wheel, which was like this element thing. But that didn't really matter because you can make a synchrome where you could put two metal wheels together. And that was its whole power creep for the thing. So I shouldn't hold on to this uh, original inbox magna core. (laughs) That's just not going to be worth anything. No. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe hold on to it. Uh, Maybe fake a signature and see how it does. My favorite system from that I still think is hilarious. Clearly it didn't work as intended because they never used it again. But was the engine gears where you put a separate little wind-up motor in the Beyblade so you were adding more energy into it 
after you let it go? That could not have worked, right? No. I think I, th- I think Burst has the equivalent. It's called hybrid and ignition. It's electric motor drivers, and they would basically spin and go crazy, and they had a lot of stamina. Wait, there was a battery power. There, the thing took batteries. Yeah. Uh, That's insane. It, that is insane. Yeah, it's... There's, there's sometimes, like, with TT, they'll just do, like, a simple... And then after, they'll just do, like, this random evolution where it's, like, a very, like, crazy gimmick and just never re-release the part again. That's... Dear God. I... So, I thought I would get to the bottom of this, but it looks like I've barely scratched the surface. So, Beyblade is very complicated, but there is a good resource, which is the Beyblade Wiki, and generally, they're still trying to update information. It is a very good reference point uh, to get into it. And Beyblade Burst... On the surface, if you just try to get into the newer stuff, it doesn't get too complicated. You just have to try to learn the other stuff. And again, uh, the WBO, a lot of helpful people, a lot of great members in the community, and it's very welcoming. So uh, to to wrap things up, uh, the thrill of blading, the uh, the joy of competition for you. What is what is an ideal Beyblade match? What does that look like? What is what is the perfect scenario? The high that you chase every time you walk into a Beyblade competition? I typically, so I'll just talk in context of WBO tournaments. So typically for first stage, I like to run stamina combinations because those are like the safe combinations. Like if it's a stamina thing, you could outspin your opponent. Typically in deck, it does depend what it is, but I do like attack types because essentially it's just beating up your opponent aggressively <laughs> with your bay. It's always fun. I would say it's really fun to do stamina and balance. And then after, try to go with attack type. But again, it always matters practice, and people will help and give advice. But that that exciting fight when it's attack type against attack type, you're letting it rip. The it's clang, a, clang, it's a lot and of then stress. it ends with an explosion. Like, is that's that's the ideal scenario? That is the most thrilling form of competition, right? For bursting, right? For bursting, it's very, it feels really good when you burst your opponent. It does not feel good when you lose by a burst or. There are times where you could have an attack type and it takes a lot of recoil and it loses a lot of clicks with each big hit. So you could be really like stressing out and thinking, oh God, this next hit, I might actually burst. One of the things about Beyblade competition that I noticed is that it really is a global phenomenon. Uh, obviously, yes. it's big in Japan. Obviously, it's big in North America. Korea. Uh, is So yeah, uh, Korea and South America yes. seems to have a lot of Beyblade competitors and Beyblade kind of media uh, is... What do you think is going on there? It's very unique to see different countries and how they handle stuff. Because, for an example, let's say North America, we could have completely different combos from people that are in Japan. And COVID sucks, but we did actually have a world uh, championship where there was actually qualifiers. Like, actually, I think this was in uh, Beyblade Burst God. Uh, but there, it, it's a lot of fun, and it's it's really cool seeing the quality, and it feels like the actual anime because you're essentially seeing like these kids, they have these mm-hmm. combos and everything, and competing, and that's what I think is the core of Beyblade, which is just the fun in the competition. Yes, it's stressful. Yes, there's a lot of anxiety with it, but it's just the fun of meeting people. I have seen battling. children cry. I have watched videos, and there are children crying at these competitions. It, it is tough. And if, uh, if I do beat a kid and they are upset, you know, you have to reassure them. Because obviously they're young and they want to win. But, you know, you have to be a good Crush sport about Crush them with things. your powerful, <laughs> handcrafted <laughs> Deck. I'm not in. I, I just endorse uh, supporting kids and making sure that they're happy. Uh, just I for support crushing their dreams because you have the ultimate weapon, a Beyblade to surpass even the God Strike G. I, I, I do feel pretty bad when you beat a kid because, like, they have a Hasbro Bay and I have a TT Bay, and 
you know, it kind of sucks because <laughs> I don't want to lose. Like, if it wasn't maybe a ranked tournament, I, I'd maybe let them win and I, I'd pretend like, oh, wow, you did a good job. But, you know, if it's... I'd do funny dances, na 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 I would really just dominate those little children. Until they physically, until a literal sniper hired by Hasbro took me out. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, Jose, thank you so much. Uh, where can we find you on YouTube? Uh, you can find me on the Zanky YouTube channel, Z-A-N-K-Y-E. I cover burst content. Uh, sometimes I do the older stuff. That's a lie. I've done the older stuff in the past. I want to do the older stuff actually after burst ends. Uh, also, I mentioned some other stuff, which is a good fan community, the WBO. It's a fan forum, very nice place, nice people there. And yeah, I just want to say thank you for having me here. Anytime. Well, it's the end of the episode, and obviously, uh, even without Holden, I got to plug our Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew is the best way to help support the podcast and more importantly, support the hosts. Uh, you know, Holden has a newborn baby. I have a struggling VTuber channel, youtube.com slash Puppet Jared, if you want to check that out. I don't know. Maybe check it out. Maybe give me a sub. I don't know. Uh, but the, the mostly the baby, mostly the precious baby. Uh, for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, including game reviews, uh, hot take discussions, and of course, our Year That Was history series, where we go year by year uh, through the movies, games, and television shows that defined our childhoods. So go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, and your support means so much now more than ever. Uh, and of course, there's the Sunday study session, which uh, is a great hangout where we go live with the patrons on that tier, and they help us kind of guide the future of upcoming topics. And really, it's just a chance to start engaging with the materials. You know, if it's about a movie, we watch the movie. It's about the game. We play a game. It's a very fun time. And, it, you know, it helps us. It helps you. It helps everybody. And it's a very fun time. Um, recommended for diehard fans. And of course, Rich Weirdos. Rich Weirdo, I'm talking to you, buddy. Uh, put down the bathrobe. You know, stop firing guns through the house. There's better ways to use your uh, ill-gotten gains. And it's on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Until next time, uh, thanks and later. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hold up. 